I operate at times from a place of fear. And it's not fear that like controls me to a point that I'm paralyzed. I'm not paralyzed by fear, but I'm endlessly wondering what the consequences could be based on what decision I make in that moment. Luck as a, as a term or by definition would suggest that it's something out of our control, whether that's good or bad luck, it's something that happens, it's out of our control. I'm Emily Drinkwater, and you're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Hey, you are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Sean Zimmerman-Wall. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well... We have had one hell of a December here in the Wasatch, and it's been stacking up. I couldn't be happier. I've been patrolling in my spare time and taking laps with the kiddos and deep powder at the bird. It's also been a bit terrifying and electric in the backcountry, with a persistent weak layer that is healing but has produced avalanches hundreds of feet wide and over a meter deep in places. Remote triggers have been the norm. And even at the ski area, we've been seeing avalanches that are running full track. Did I mention it's only December? Across the Mountain West and up into the Pacific Northwest, and even up into BC, our friends up there are still wringing themselves out from a pretty wet start to the month. Ugh. For all you AK folk, it's been dark, cold, and probably hasn't stopped snowing since October. My friends across the pond in Chamonix seem to be having fun in the high alpine, where coverage is looking stellar. Can't wait to get out there this March for my first adventure in the birthplace of alpinism. Before we dive into today's episode, I'm going to pass the mic over to my main man Caleb to tell us about the innovations happening over at Propagation Labs. Take it away, Caleb. Support for this episode comes from Propagation Labs. Propagation Labs is a small company from Salt Lake City, Utah that makes tools for snow and avalanche professionals to help streamline the collection, recording, and analyzing of snowpack observations. The Snowscope Probe is a digital penetrometer that can rapidly and accurately measure snowpack structure, then send the data to your phone in seconds. Use of the Snowscope keeps observations standardized and objective, removing bias from hand hardness profiles. Reduce your uncertainty around the spatial variability of the snowpack through efficient sampling. Using the Snowscope will give you a hardness profile in less than 10 seconds, allowing you to sample snowpack structure across various aspects and elevation bands, giving you a better understanding of the big picture. The Snowscope has been tested in 24 countries by over 90 snow professionals, with over 7,000 snow profiles recorded. I got my hands on a Snowscope last year and used it while ski guiding and forecasting. I often used it in conjunction with the manual snow pit. When comparing its results to my hand hardness profiles, I was impressed by the accuracy of the Snowscope. 
Throughout the progression of the day, the snow scope helped me to save time through progressive sampling as I changed elevation bands or aspects, all while keeping an eye on the depth and distribution of a layer of concern. To find out more or to order a snow scope, check out propagationlabs.com or download the free Snowscope app to check out the data and see the manual pit recording features. It's like a digital notebook. Even if you don't have a Snowscope probe, check out this super helpful app that's free. If you're intrigued, don't miss the full-length episode featuring Joe and Garrett of Propagation Labs. It's episode 710. Thanks, Caleb. All right, let's get into it. I am delighted to bring you today's episode featuring Emily Drinkwater. I first met Emily at a guide training for a Utah cat skiing operation in 2020. I could see her skills as a mountain professional were complemented by her demeanor and easygoing approach. Over the years since then, we have not had the chance to work together in the mountains, although we do have mutual friends and we are both friends of Wonder Alpine and choose their equipment to get us from A to Z. Through this connection, I have followed Emily's trajectory as a guide and educator. This November, we sat down in my kitchen to record this lovely track, which takes on the topic of luck in the mountains. Here we go. Lifting off with Emily in three, two, one. Welcome everyone. It's November 20th. We're sitting here in my kitchen watching the clouds part over the Wasatch Mountains after a recent snowstorm. And I'm joined by... Emily Drinkwater. Thanks for coming, Emily. We're really excited to have you on the show today. And... As is custom, I like to start out with getting to know the person who's behind the Gore-Tex. If you'd share with us, that would be great. Sure. I'm a mountain guide. That's sort of my um, what I spend a lot of my time doing as a career. Um, I work in three disciplines pretty equally, so rock climbing, alpine climbing, and backcountry skiing. And I'm very much a generalist. I'm not a specialist in any of those things. I like them all. Uh, and I spend pretty much an equal or, you know, each a, a third of each part of the year doing each one of those things. And how long have you been doing that? Um, a long time, 20 plus years. I basically begged my way into a, a job as a rock climbing guide when I was right out of college. So 22, 23. And I've stuck with it ever since. Um, yeah. And so beyond a paycheck, what does mountain guiding do for you as Emily the human? Well, it gets me outside, which is really important to me. I'm definitely not somebody who would be good sitting inside or behind a desk. I like to be outside. I like to work with people and meet people, uh, which is funny because I'm really quite introverted. And guiding is an extroverted job, but I really enjoy meeting people from all sorts of backgrounds. Uh, and of course, being able to ski and climb, um, as, as a job is pretty good. Right on. Do you have, uh, any kind of formative experiences in your upbringing that really, uh, or even as in your guide career that really pointed you at, this is the, the work for me? I grew up skiing, so I've always been a skier and always loved skiing. I learned to rock climb when I was in college, and then I really gravitated towards that. Um, I don't know if there's necessarily a particularly formative moment. I mean, I in college, I, was, I have a degree in anthropology and African studies. It's quite academic. 
And I think at some point in college, I recognized that I wasn't going to be somebody that could just endlessly do research. Like I wanted to be outside, sort of doing things with my hands, traveling, working with people. Uh, My anthropology degree did kind of set me up for that. I was interested in cultural anthropology. But it became clear at a point that I would be much better off like in the field every day doing things doing things sort of with my hands, feet, body. Right on. And were there any uh, professors or other students in that program that were like you, an outdoors person who wanted to be out and about, not necessarily just the cultural aspects, but the the adventure aspects? No, I don't think so. Oh, really? I, I don't. I mean, it's a small program at a liberal arts college in northern New York State. Uh, so no, I I in my recollection or my impression of the of my co-students is most of them were pretty academic and pretty focused on um, that as a career. And often careers in anthropology, it's heavy on research and time in front of a computer and reading. And um, I like all those things, but it's not really something I'm great at. Fair enough. Yeah. Were there any trips during that time that you got to go on, whether they were semesters elsewhere or any particular field outings that were impactful in your upbringing there? Yeah, I spent a semester in Kenya um, when I was mm, a junior in college, and and that was super impactful. Um, yeah, I learned a lot. I actually got to rock climb a little bit when I was in Kenya. I took a year off from skiing. I was a Nordic ski racer in college. Um, and so it was a little weird for me to take a whole season, really just a season off from racing. Um, but it was actually a really good break. For those listeners out there who might not be familiar with the, the Kenyan landscape, can you describe it a little bit? It's a big country, but maybe the parts you were in? Yeah, I mean, we were based in Nairobi, which is a city, big city, big worldly cultural city. Um, and we traveled pretty routinely to other parts of the country, um, parts of the country that are very rural, um, parts that are pastoral-based. And um, I even did a homestay at one point with um, a group of Samburu, which is a a tribe of Kenya. Being that you were um, outside of your your home country in another culture, Maybe you've had other cultural experiences before that, but was there anything about that cultural experience as a whole that kind of stood out and stood apart from some of the other ones you've had in your life? Uh, Well, I guess that particular traveling and spending a semester in Kenya, uh, it's definitely triggered my love and interest of any foreign country and foreign people, um, but particular, particularly like non-Western Definitely have always had an interest in traveling to sort of these more remote parts of the world, eastern parts of the world, or eastern to the United States, North America, um, and people that live very differently than we do as North Americans. I bet that was a powerful experience to be there. And you said it was a whole semester. Yeah. Wow. Nice. And so once you were back on the mainland here in the U.S. and North America, uh, you finished your studies there and then began working in the in the outdoor industry, as it yeah, may be called right. sometimes. And uh, in terms of kind of your guiding 
evolution, what has, has that looked for you? You did say you're a generalist, mm -hmm. so you spend a third of your time in each discipline, but is there a discipline that you prefer over one or the other, or do you like them equally? I do like them equally, but I would have to say that I've started to trend much more towards skiing as, as something now that I live here in the Wasatch and we have a lot of skiing. Um, I love skiing and I like ski guiding a lot. So yes, that has just become a bigger focal point of my work in the past eight-ish, eight to 10 years. Um, when I lived in the Northeast, I did a ton of ice climbing. And now that I live here in Utah, we don't, we don't have reliable ice the way it, it, it exists in the Northeast. So I've been pushed into more skiing and skiing's just fun. Like it's type one fun a lot of the time and climbing is scary a lot of the time. Do you ever find yourself blending these different aspects into like ski mountaineering or you know, alpine routes that require maybe an ascent up one uh, route with a set of ice tools in your hand, but then you're coming off another side with skis on your feet? Yeah, that's my most favorite way to travel in the mountains. Yeah, if I could combine rock climbing, ice climbing, skiing, uh, and like all the tools required of that and whatever terrain it may be, and including a summit, like that is my most favorite way to travel in the mountains. It means a lot of time climbing things with skis on your back and then often side slipping down, but I'm okay with that. Right on. So beyond uh, a mountain guide, you're also an educator and sometimes an educator of mountain guides. Yes. What has your experience been like with that when you're teaching the next generation of, of mountain dwellers? Very much keeps me on my toes to stay current and fresh with the most up-to-date information. Um, and I'm, right now, I guess I'm referring largely to teaching um, guide programs, but that's true with avalanche education too, which I have in the past taught a fair amount of avalanche courses, mostly here in the Wasatch, some in other places. Um, I won't do as much teaching this year, um, but the same is true. Like I, being in education forces you to stay on top of the most, most up-to-date information. And students will expect you to know that. And um, often they will know more than I do. Uh, so yeah, I learn, I learn a lot from them too. Are there any particular avenues that you go down to keep yourself sharp and on top of kind of the latest? Are there any resources that you like to look at frequently or Take us through maybe a little bit about your, you know, preparation for teaching, maybe on any subject matter, you can keep it to, you know, kind of broad. I think really I learn the most directly from students when I'm in the moment. Like that is when I sort of hear about the most up-to-date information or they'll ask a question that I don't have an answer for but I know how to go about getting an answer, which often involves reaching out to uh, another friend or instructor or doing some research on the internet or reading books. Like most of that information exists. Yeah, there's definitely reliable resources that I regularly use. And, and that might be anything from um, guidebooks, manuals that have been written for guiding, um, the Avalanche Review is a great resource. 
Um, I look through, I have to look through the swag a lot because I can't memorize any of those things. So yeah, I mean, it's anything from what's on my bookshelf to what I can find on the internet and distill from the internet because there's a lot of incorrect information out there too. Being an educator of this next generation of folks, have you found um, that things are easier to convey for you? Or are you having to maybe even put in more time now because there's so much information out there? Well, it's gotten easier because I've gotten more comfortable teaching and essentially speaking to a group of students. Initially, I had to put in a fair amount of prep time. And and that was certainly true with avalanche education is I in order to teach something, you have to really understand it well and be prepared for any number of questions that students ask. Like there's a lot of these students are often super smart and on top of it, and they will ask questions that um, can be hard to answer or I might not have an immediate answer for. I've been doing this long enough that I can now I can predict some of those questions or some of them are repeat questions. And so I, you know, already have an answer. But initially, I had to sit down and put together um, PowerPoints and lesson plans and try to predict what students might say and also just be, um, yeah, ready to teach kind of anything that could come across the table. So you have the time in the classroom, but you also have the time in the field. Mm -hmm. And I know particularly we were talking earlier about the guide courses, very field focused. Um, is there anything that you do to prepare yourself for those field sessions as an educator that maybe some of the educators listening might benefit from? I think the biggest thing is um, being able to be in the field and teaching and talking and being on top of it, especially as far as risk management, all day long. Um yeah, these programs, well, ed avalanche education and guide education is risk management's kind of the number one thing to be heads up about. I work in a dangerous environment and you cannot let your guard down. And that that is quite tiring. And I, you know, over time have learned how to how to keep an eye on everything and be very tight with that but also manage self-care and like drink enough water and eat enough food and be able to be out in the sun or the cold all day. I've, I've just learned what strategies work well for me. Um, but that might sort of be the hardest part of it is just being out and engaged and focused all day while not necessarily doing um, it's not recreational at that point. Like it's a job. Mm. And you are, in, in effect, a model for these folks on how to care for yourself as a mountain guide or as an avalanche professional, depending on the context. Yeah. And they overlap. Yeah. Um, have you found that um, students are good at that in the moment as a student no, caring not, for themselves? No, not usually. And I would, as a student myself, when I was going through the program and learning all these things, I don't think I was very good at it you get a little tunnel visioned and you're in school and you're being assessed or, or you can, it's easy to self-inflict stress on any level of program if you take it seriously. And uh, 
once you once you go down that road of self-inflicted stress or performance anxiety and pressure, it's, it gets really hard to take care of yourself, mm. which you can do for a couple days. But if you know some of these programs are ten days long, twelve days long, uh, that gets harder to keep up with. It does, and I find that uh, that's that's the reality of these courses, both as a student or or as the instructor. Um, being in a position of that myself with avalanche education, have you found it um, to be more commonplace when you're kind of setting up the course or the tone that like you talk about that openly, like this is a stressful course and here's what we recommend you do. I mean, is that conversation happening a lot more than you used to see? I don't know about a lot more. That's a good question. I'm not really sure, but I would say certainly that is a focus at the beginning of any of these programs and uh, always worth talking about, or I guess I always mention to students, like, you will be tired at the end of this. And it might not seem like on day one when we're doing ground school or just sitting in the classroom talking, it's hard to imagine feeling tired. But yes, between the a lot of information being thrown out there, um, as well as a lot of time in the field, like physical time in the field. It's hard to get to the end of a 10-day program, for example, and not be tired or a little bit beat up. And that could be anything from like feet to like, I just taught this course in Joshua Tree. And and if you weren't taping your hands or wearing gloves to climb in, crack gloves to climb in every day. People people had really beat up skin and hands by the end of this course. So it's easy to think on day one that that won't happen, but it inevitable, inevitably does. So we try to set people up for success with some warning of this, but the reality is until you've done it a lot, that's a hard, sometimes a hard lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. You have to learn it the hard way. And are you familiar with the concept of desirable difficulty? No, but it sounds like something that I would like. Uh, I'm just curious in this uh, educational paradigm that we're in now, particularly in the context we're talking about, is it desirable difficulty for the students? Are they coming in at the right baseline to where they can desire the rigor of these programs? Or is there something we can do to either adjust that rigor or set them up for success so that when they do come in, that they're more prepared? I think, yes, depends a little on the program. I mean, there's going to be a big difference between like a level one avalanche class or even a sort of awareness class and a pro two. And there's going to be a big difference between uh, one of the introductory level classes of an AMGA program and an exam. So, yes, I think intro level programs, there's ways we can set people up to be prepared for the difficulty that might be encountered, whereas an exam or a, a pro two I think that's ex- it's expected and it's understood that it will be difficult. And if and if you're someone that doesn't want that or doesn't like an assessment or exam component, you you might not be there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I mean there are ways to prepare people for any level program, and that could be as simple as um, pre-course or pre-program conversations or emails or. Um, 
I teach for the American Avalanche Institute, and they do a really good job of um, sending out uh, pre-course videos to prepare students for anything, um, anything from like, how do you pack your pack and what do you bring on any given day? And I think that level of expectation setting is really important. And I wonder how our students are really coming to these courses, not only with their own kind of like internal preparation that's done, but how are they fitting this into their life or their job? Because many of them are aspiring pros who want to get into this. And, you know, maybe they're in a career uh, transition. Maybe, you know, I've had more and more students coming from the tech sector who now have this like desire to be mountain guides or educators or even some folks that are like, hey, I want to go be a ski patroller. And so they come to these courses and they're in a transition period, but they have a little bit of a cushion that allows for it. Whereas you take the pro who's been working in the industry for a while and maybe has a very seasonal career and they come in and they're fitting this six to 12 day course in between these work obligations. And so I, I often like empathize with them because in a lot of ways we're doing the same as educators. We're stacking up our contracts to make a full season of work. But, you know, how do those two uh, groups of people coexist in a course that's aimed at this like credentialing? It can be quite a challenge, I think, as an educator to manage, but it's possible. Yeah, I agree. That is a great question. I'm not totally sure how... Um how the coexisting happens when you have people from very different backgrounds. I mean, it does, it does happen there. People learn from each other. And I actually think this is a um, kind of a place where mentorship falls in. And, and I think mentorship in the, in terms of like mentorship within peers. So somebody coming from like a maybe more professional background looking to get into guiding or avalanche education or or ski patrol will have something else to offer to somebody who's maybe already coming from that background. So there is a pretty good amount of peer support, um, especially if the group dynamics are good from the start. Mo- most people can learn from each other. I mean, that's, that's how I, I've learned a lot is being willing to listen to people coming from different backgrounds and sort of picking up on things that they do well and maybe things that are less of a strength for me. I love that. The peer mentorship or yeah. peer support yeah. uh, type of model. Yeah. And something I've been reminding myself of so much is like the knowledge is in the room or in in the field as it may be. And you're, you're there as an educator to evoke that, to come out and then impart your perspective as an educator, or this is how we do this technical system, or these are the industry standards that we follow, or maybe better practices um, to get people leveled up for a, an expectation in the workplace. Um, but so much of that rich conversation comes out of you know the people sharing experiences. And so this is where I'm going to pivot our conversation to something that we were talking about before, which is these conversations that come either as maybe a case study that you present from an instructor's point of view, or you're having with your, your students. And this could also happen in your, in your off time when you're chatting with your mates, uh, getting ready to prepare for a climb or something kind of, you talked about it before risk management is a lot of what we do 
we model it in the educational setting and we practice it there, but it's because it's what we have to do in the workplace or even in our recreation. But so much of risk management is tied to something we've been talking about, which is this concept of luck in the mountains. And so I'm curious if, if that's something that you want to explore a little bit and what does that mean to you? I definitely want to explore it. I've been, uh, so I started thinking about luck in the mountains Maybe five years ago, I was on a panel at USAW, one of the USAW events, and I offhandedly made a comment, something to the effect of like, oh, I've been really lucky in the mountains and hoped it would just end there. And sure enough, somebody from the audience came up and, and with a question, which was something like, well, what does that mean? What does luck in the mountains mean? And I, I just did not have an answer. I kind of bumbled my way through that a question. I, it, yeah, I was kind of, I didn't have an answer. I didn't know what that meant. Like we so often throw around, oh, we were getting lucky in the mountains or that was, that was bad luck. And ever since then, that was probably five years ago, I've really mostly just been thinking about what that means. And because I do consider myself sort of quote unquote lucky, but a luck as a, as a term or by definition would suggest that it's something out of our control, whether that's good or bad luck. It's something that happens that's out of our control. And I just started thinking more about that and realized that whatever my lucky moments in the mountains have been, it's, it's actually because I've always tried my best to st stack the odds in my favor. And I'll try to apply this to the sort of skiing in the avalanche world because it can mean something really different in, in rock climbing or I don't know, any other part of life. Um, but for skiing, I started to realize that some of the things I was doing to, to get lucky, quote unquote, in the mountains was um, choosing my partners really carefully. Like I'm pretty picky about who I go out on a ski tour with, for example, or who I work for. Um, because I really, I think good partners is pretty important. And I'm um, I'm not that willing to, especially on a day off, um, go with just anybody I want. You know, these days I largely just ski with other guides um, because I know that they can rescue, you know, pull off a rescue if we had to. And um, not that I'm not that I'm going into terrain on on a day off that I like am anticipating being rescued in. In fact, it's kind of the opposite, which is. I, I often avoid avalanche terrain if I can, if I'm just out for a day off. And like we're as professionals, we're so routinely exposed to the hazards um, in, an, in any winter environment. And so that, that's another part of stacking the odds in my favor or trying to stay with luck on my side is I don't always ski in avalanche terrain. Um, I try to be well prepared going into any given day of, of work or personal skiing. Um, so having the right equipment with me, choosing the right partners, uh, being well aware of what's going on with the snowpack. Um, that said, none of those things can, um, you can still get, you could still be sort of unlucky, I guess. Or, or make the wrong decision. 
um, statistically, I mean, I think luck sort of goes at some point becomes like a probability game. So if you're, if as avalanche professionals or as um, industry professionals in the avalanche and ski world, you can, you can be out for like a hundred days in a row and nothing happens or nothing, we get lucky or we think we get lucky because nothing happens. But that at some point is a statistic. Like maybe we're mostly making good decisions, hopefully. Like I try really hard to make good decisions. Um, but I do think at some point that will catch up. It's hard not to. Like we're just exposed, we're really vulnerable all the time, especially in avalanche terrain. So I do my best to make good decisions. I kind of live in a, I operate at times from a place of fear. And it's not fear that like controls me to a point that I'm paralyzed. I'm not paralyzed by fear, but I'm endlessly wondering what the consequences could be based on what decision I make in that moment. I mean, it's the classic, that's how we guide is like, what, what's the likelihood that something could happen and what are the consequences? And then how, how do I decide what to do based on the, and it's like very quick, like that's like decisions that are happening all day long. Um, but yeah, how do you decide where to go based on, on what, what's the worst outcome? Mm, that's powerful. And thinking about this world that we live in and, and, and consequence and likelihood. And, and I've been talking to some folks about like, well, do people not understand consequence or do they not understand likelihood? Or is it both and they're kind of equal or one versus the other? Maybe that's all very personal, but we all, I think, generally understand the consequence of an avalanche, even a small one that's, you know, size two, large enough to bury, injure, or kill a vulnerable human. That consequence is pretty easy to think about. But I think as humans, sometimes we tend to gravitate towards not not uh, giving due respect to the likelihood of that event happening. And that's where like the luck piece plays in. It's like, well, is that something that you all factored in or not? And something that I read that stuck with me long ago, um, and I come to find out it's from this 20th century baseball player named Branch Rickey, which is, you know, his full quote was, things worthwhile generally don't just happen. Luck is a fact, but should not be a factor. Good luck is what is left over after intelligence and effort have combined at their best. Negligence or indifference are usually reviewed from an unlucky seat. The law of cause and effect and causality both work the same with inexorable exactitudes. Luck is the residue of design. That last part's what's always stuck with me, and it speaks to how you opened up your, your segment here on that. Um, but dig deeper. Like, What else have you been thinking about with regards to the luck aspect of how we operate or recreate? Well, lots of things. But that That's an interesting quote. The two things that kind of stood out to me on that were, um, well, and like you had just said, the question is, are, are we aware of consequences and not the likelihood? And I think there's a certain amount of um, invincibility or 
belief that like you can get away with something uh, that would trend toward the bad luck side, whereas good luck, and I think the quote kind of was saying it is a is good luck doesn't just happen. There's effort in that. Um, and you have to look for luck and you, yeah, you have to put effort into it. But I do think good luck is a little bit of a combination of risk, like being willing to take a risk or looking for certain opportunities um, combined with effort or determination. And so consequence is easier to see, whereas likelihood is easier to maybe not see because you're, you, you think you're invincible or you think you can get away with it or outsmart something. And I, I might fall a little bit into that at times. And I think that's why good partners are really important because a good partner in the mountains or certainly when you're traveling in avalanche terrain or my good partners anyway, will often see things that I'm not thinking about or um, not recognizing for what they are. And I don't know, I guess I don't think of myself as somebody who thinks that they're invincible, but that that might be suggesting a little bit that I'm, I'm missing something along the way. So if something happens, you think like, oh, that was bad luck. But, but I think um, it, it's not. It's like a series of decisions that ultimately led to quote-unquote bad luck. Yeah, and sometimes in the review of case studies, you know, uh, we might be able to have a difficult time closing the empathy gap between us and the individuals or the parties involved in the accident, whether it be in a recreational setting or a professional. Um, and that that whole concept of, well, they were making decisions that led to this, but if it was me in that situation, maybe I would consider myself unlucky. Um, and so trying to kind of step away from that is, um, it's difficult because again, that empathy gap is sometimes hard to hard to close, particularly if you've never been in that situation. And optimally, well, I should say realistically, you're never going to find yourself in the same situation as somebody else. We use case studies, it seems like, um, generally well to kind of open people's eyes to what the consequences are and how at the end of the day, humans do things. And sometimes those things lead to tragedy or maybe not tragedy, but a near miss. Um, but yeah, this concept of luck. And when you first approached me about it a, a few months ago, it really got me thinking about like, well, how much credence do we give to that? Particularly the good luck side of things and how much, like you've said here is like an element of, of our design and preparation and, and awareness. Yeah, I, it's something I think about a lot and it's, it's very, a little bit classic at the end of an avalanche course or the end of a day when you're debriefing your day to ask, did we get lucky? Uh, did we, did nothing happen today? And now we consider that luck 
or did we get away with something and we're not aware of it? And I started reframing the question a little differently and been asking, well, mostly I asked myself, how did I, if the day went well and nothing happened, how is it that I'm not unlucky? Which is, you have to think about for a minute to try to decipher that. But I think if you're asking yourself, how am I not unlucky? For me, that gets me thinking about things that I did throughout the day um, that, that maybe that I got away with. Yeah, and I have endless anecdotal stories of, um, and I think another part of luck is you've learned some lessons along the way and you've had some kind of close calls. And that's very hard to do in avalanche terrain because that doesn't, as we know, it's kind of a wicked environment. You don't very often just get away with with an avalanche accident. Um so I've had, I have tons of stories just of my time in the mountains where I've had lots of things that um, I've, I've gotten away with or they've sort of been close calls. And I mean, at some point when you spend a lot of time in the mountains, this, these like close, and they're not super close calls. Sometimes it's just bad decisions that led to like, oh, I had to spend an extra night out or we got caught in the storm or we just got benighted. So, um, I don't know. I'm not sure where I was exactly going with that, but I do think a lot about the difference between luck and you think to yourself like, yeah, we just got lucky today. End of story. Whereas if you either had bad luck or you ask yourself like, what am I doing to not be unlucky? It can maybe bring about a little different way of thinking thinking about the decisions you made throughout the day hmm. or throughout your entire career or life. It's not necessarily just in a single moment. Hmm. Let's get into a little story time. Hmm. You said you okay. had some anecdotes. Is there something that, uh, that stood out in your mind recently or maybe from, from further back in your past where you've, you've seen this play out, this, this concept of luck in the decision-making or how you've prepared yeah, I mean, there is, I, I thought about this a lot because like I said, I've got sort of a lot of these anecdotal stories. And luckily for me, I actually don't really have any particular close calls with avalanches because um, I try as hard as I can to generally stay away from that. But I've spent a lot of time in the mountains and on snow and in in alpine environments. And there's, there is an interesting story that I think about a lot, which is a, um, probably five or eight years ago, I was on a trip in Alaska. It was just my husband and I doing a personal alpine climbing trip, but we were traveling on skis. We were in the Alaska range and we are, got flown in, dropped off at our camp and decided to go on a afternoon ski tour to just check out the peaks. It was a nice day. We wanted to go scope things for, um, you know, upcoming climbing throughout the rest of the trip. And so we just were on a big, huge glacier, Alaskan glacier, and um, we started skiing up glacier. And it was in the spring and it was relatively early in the day, but sort of at the beginning of a big warm-up trend. 
So we started skiing and the snow pack was firm and we weren't roped up or anything. And we skied way up this glacier, just checking out like climbs that we might be interested in doing and things that were hazardous, things that we wanted to stay away from. And my husband was, I don't know, 50 yards in front of me and I was just following in his tracks. And all of a sudden there was like a huge sort of settling under my feet, like a big loud crack and and like the settling. And I just froze in my tracks and I realized that I was standing on a huge, I was on a snow bridge of some sort, standing over a huge Alaskan um, crevasse that was just covered. And I looked across and I could see a big sag and I was just standing in the middle of this thing. And, and my husband heard this big crack and like looked back to see what was going on. And he was like, get off, like keep moving, keep moving. And um, I scurried off and it, nothing happened. I mean, it, it had cracked and fractured all around me. And like Alaskan, Alaskan crevasses are big. Like this is not like these are not little things that you just ski across. And it was the beginning of a big warm-up trend. And so we quickly roped up. Like, that was number one mistake. I don't know why we were – I have no idea why we were skiing on a big Alaskan glacier, like, the moment we arrived in camp being unroped. I don't know what we – why we thought that was an okay decision, other than it was still morning and it was cool and the, and we had skis on. So we're thinking we can bridge these crevasses. But – that was a, a moment that I've always been like, so was that luck? Like, did I just purely get lucky to not like drop to the bottom of this huge crevasse? Or had we somehow made dis good decisions along the way? And actually, I think it's not, I think it is a moment. I don't think any of our decisions were particularly great. Um, but it's a good example of a lesson learned. And, you know, now if I'm going to go travel and like, and it, it, this was not a particularly traveled area. It's not like it wasn't on the Cahiltna where you have like a huge track of, you know, skiers and climbers going up the West Buttress, definitely a much more remote area. Um, yeah. So now I'm like, I, I'm not going to wander out onto a big Alaskan glacier on day one of a trip without any information and just, and not ski, um, or ski unroped. That's a very easy thing to add to um, not being unlucky is just put the rope on until you have more information. Sure. Yeah. You were operating off kind of a limited set of variables to make that decision. You talked yeah. about like, okay, timing of the day, the fact that you're wearing skis on your feet. So your weight's more evenly distributed. You had some, some data points there or some variables that led you to that decision, but then you had this you know, collapse of the snow bridge, but it didn't completely fail. You just splintered the slope and your husband was on the other side of that crack. So the other thing that I'm curious about is who's, if there was luck involved, whose luck was that? Was it yours or was it Jesse's? It, it was, my, it was both of ours. So luck is shared. It's totally shared. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously it benefits me to not have fallen into this gigantic crevasse but it benefits him too that he doesn't isn't all of a sudden finding himself either without a partner or having to do a major rescue or um actually I think I might have been carrying the rope so that's a really powerful example um 
and led to quite a bit of reflection, I would imagine, from both you and Jesse after the fact. Um, is there a, another situation that you can think of that um, either you've experienced or or you and your partners? Um, it could even be um, in a in a classroom setting, but thinking about you've you've done a lot of preparation and things are going well, um, and then maybe there is some sort of objective hazard that causes an accident, or maybe it's just something completely unrelated to the natural environment, but there's an unfortunate event and then there's luck in the outcome of how it didn't get worse. I mean, honestly, this would be a great time to talk about my subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay. Is that? Yeah. I mean, it's not, um, it doesn't really have anything to do with avalanches or skiing. But I did have a, a major medical incident this summer, completely spontaneous, completely out of the blue. I was working in the North Cascades, um, teaching an advanced alpine guide course, and um, went into it super prepared, like as you would. I was physically prepared, um, mentally prepared, and then like on a microscopic level, I had all the equipment I needed with me. It was, we were headed in for an overnight. And, um, you know, I'd been working leading up to this event and just feeling completely normal, like life as usual. And I spontaneously about maybe, and it's a long story, but maybe only 10 minutes into our approach on our, you know, first of um, two big days in the mountains, alpine climbing, I had a um, spontaneous subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a, a type of brain bleed, kind of falls under the umbrella um, or is in the hemorrhagic stroke family. And I had no idea that this was happening. I was sick. I was very sick. I had a terrible headache, and um, but didn't know that I was having a, a brain bleed. So I was quickly dismissing it as everything else, like, could be food poisoning, could be car sickness, like, I don't know. Um, and so I kept going, like marching into the mountains with a group of, of as good of a group of people as you could ask for. So advanced um, students who are all guides, and then my peers um, who are instructors. Um, so we're all, this is a very trained group. I wasn't, I wasn't guiding new guests or people who are new to the alpine environment. Um, and I just kept kept getting sort of progressively sicker as we walked in and reached a point where I couldn't keep going. Um, like I was not unconscious, but very sick. And and I just kept asking, I just kept telling my coworkers, like, I just need to rest. Like, I'll be fine. I just need to rest, which is sort of a red flag, I think. Um, and... Yeah, anyway, the, I kept getting sicker. It's a long story, but the the short of this is I ultimately walked out of the mountains. My co-instructors walked me out of the mountains, back to the trailhead. I was taken to the hospital. Um, I don't remember any of that part. I don't remember walking out, which is crazy. And in the hospital, a small hospital in um near the North Cascades, I was, uh, luckily they gave me a CT scan and diagnosed it as a brain bleed. And um, from there, I was flown to the big hospital in Seattle and went right into an emergency surgery to have these holes drilled in my skull. 
And then I spent the next um, two and a half weeks in the neuro ICU. And I have made this like, so this is a, a subarachnoid hemorrhage is rare, and it's typically associated with very poor outcomes or death. Um, so it's not a good thing to have uh, at all. And I had all this testing done when I was in the hospital in Seattle, because the doctors there are looking for like a pre-existing condition or um, some kind of an, an aneurysm or a vein malformation. They don't usually these are associated with a reason that you would have a brain bleed. And that could be like a car accident or you hit your head, but I hadn't done any of those things. Like my life had been completely normal. So um, sort of a very, what I consider to be an unlucky, spontaneous event. Like I have no family history. Like I'm a, I'm a relatively healthy person. Um, so kind of a lucky, spontaneous event. On the other side of this, there have been a lot of things that I consider lucky, which is that I'm fully recovered. Like I walked away from this with no issues. And I'm pretty sure that's luck or it's an element of luck. I mean, there are some being a healthy, active person, not particularly old yet, is is like those were things things, odds that were stacked in my favor, but some of the other odds stacked in my favor were being near a major hospital or being flown to a, the hospital in Seattle. It's really well known throughout the country for being a really great place for neurological care. Um, so a big hospital, a big city center. Um, I was told over and over again, like, oh, we do, you know, we do these, like, we drill into people's brains all the time. Like it's a very common procedure. So like that's where you want to be if you're going to have an unlucky event is somewhere where they're very used to seeing um, unlucky people at their most sick. And so I had really good care. And then I came back here to Salt Lake where I had follow-up care here at the University of Utah, which is also a great place to have um, care yeah, so I've been thinking about this a lot, that this is an unlucky event that was preceded by a lot of things that you could consider lucky on the other side of it. Mm. Wow, Emily, that's a powerful experience. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with yeah, our listeners course. and yeah. me. Um, and you had said that there was some time there where you were in the neurological ICU of the hospital what were you thinking about for two and a half weeks? Well, that's also a super interesting question because a lot of people, I, I got a lot of comments saying like, oh, that must have been so scary. And I started thinking about that and I was like, no, I was never scared ever. Partly because I um, didn't know enough about what was going on to be scared. And partly I think because I'm a pretty optimistic person and I just always assumed, like, during my time in the hospital and, and leading up to that, I guess, I just always assumed that I would be fixed, that, that like, there would be a solution, that, I, like, I just ne it never even crossed my mind that I could die or walk out of this with terrible deficits. Um, and that is sort of my nature, is I'm a pretty optimistic person, or I don't tend to go right to the negatives and there is something to be said about being optimistic that can lead to um, a little bit of luckiness. 
Mm. Optimism leading to luck. I think so. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Nice. That's something I'll have to chew on for a little bit. But I think it makes a lot of sense intuitively to me initially. And it makes me think about like other people who have persevered to survive. Yeah. And then there's that element of like surviving survival afterward. That's yeah. like a whole other podcast if you yeah, want to go yeah, there. Totally. But, yeah. So you're you're there and you're you're staying optimistic. You have family and friends wishing you well and yeah. maybe even present. Yeah. yeah. Um, was there was there anything else that you thought about during that time that has stuck with you today? I mean, mo honestly, most of those two and a half weeks in the ICU, I was quite sick. Mm. Like I had, I was sort of. It was an exercise in pain management, and I was on a lot of pain medication. Um, so I I wasn't doing too much abstract thinking. I, yeah, I mean it's interesting. People brought me books and stuff to read, and kept suggesting great TV shows, and I was like, I can't do any of that. Like I'm surviving at this point. I'm making it from like hour to hour, just trying to manage pain. So I wasn't really thinking about much. I thought a lot afterwards as I started to heal and recover. I thought a lot about the decisions that I'd made and that our team had made during leading up to and during this event and how the outcome could have been different. And the biggest thing I think I reflect on is um, I didn't really speak up. I never spoke up about how sick I was feeling early on. I didn't tell my coworkers that I like a lot of this started with a very sudden onset headache and neck ache that like started traveling down my back. And I didn't tell anybody that until well into this ordeal, like many hours into the day. I just was like, I didn't want to be a problem. Like these students are here on this exam and I don't want to get in the way of that. Like people are there paying a lot of money and there's a lot of stress and um, so I didn't speak up and, and I think if I had walked out of this with deficits or, or like, or if I was having to relearn how to speak or walk, I absolutely would have regretted not, um, telling my coworkers and students that I was sick sooner and having them like wait for me and, or maybe gone back to the car. We were so close to the trailhead when this all started. So that's been my biggest reflection is that I, I could have made some different decisions. Um, and I, yeah, if I'd been more sick or was dealing with a huge recovery, I absolutely would have regretted not speaking up sooner that things felt worse. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's pretty typical of me. I'm not, um, and that is something that could potentially, I would think, like, could get me caught in the mountains is not speaking up sooner. And so I think that's why I'm strategic with who I, who my partners are in the mountains is it's got to be people that um, don't think the same way that I do or are just going to stay quiet or not say something that they're seeing or experiencing. Yeah, that's, wow, what a powerful experience mm -hmm. to, to come on the other side of with kind of that perspective and, and just a good reminder since nothing further worse happened that uh that element of speaking up whether it be a keen observation you made or the way you're feeling i think as particularly folks who who come to this uh this line of work they tend to kind of um 
put aside or maybe compartmentalize their their pain or their like physical pain, but also mental pain and and these different things that they might not want to get in the way of the experience they're having, particularly if they're like on stage, i.e. guiding. Um, and it's like, well, everybody who came to this is is really wanting to um, have a great time and I don't want to be this bother. And it's like, it comes from this place of like not wanting to be a bother. But, you know, the thing I was thinking about recently and some discussions I was having with a, a gentleman named Ken Wiley out of Canada was like, well, wouldn't we expect our clients to tell us if something was going on? And um, what would we do if our clients didn't tell us about something that was going on? Um, now, in the case of your instance, it was like you had no idea, but something was happening. Um, but if there is a known quantity of how you're feeling, it could be a physical ailment, something going on in your personal life, like it is incumbent on all of us to speak up and and you're right, the set and setting for that can make that easier or harder. But you set yourself up for success in the mountains by the people you choose to go with. But you don't always have that choice. That's right. I mean, that's one element of it. And when I'm guiding, I generally, I often don't have that choice. I mean, I have lots of great repeat guests and clients that I've worked with for years that I've essentially trained to the standard that I want of a partner in the mountains. But there's lots of days where I just show up at work and there's um, being handed a new roster of people. So yes, you don't always have that choice. I do definitely believe as a guide that um, clients can, like, they they can always learn to belay or, I mean, it's, it is on us to teach people to be good partners in the mountains. So I, I'm never one to say like, oh, I, never, I don't trust my client belaying me. Like, no, you should be able to teach somebody to belay or you should be able to teach somebody to use their transceiver or perform basic rescue. Just a, a little bit about, you know, how do you set yourself up for success and being able to speak up? And, and more specifically, are there ways that we would deny ourselves that ability because we feel like we're yeah, on stage? Right. Yes, that's what I was thinking is, especially as guides or people that work in the outdoors or in the outdoor industry, we're pretty used to being uncomfortable. I am very comfortable with being uncomfortable. I'm used to being usually way too cold, sometimes too warm, sometimes a little scared, lots of uncertainty. Like those are all things that I'm just as a mountain guide, I'm just very used to. Um, And, but you're absolutely right that I totally expect my guests and clients to tell me if they're uncomfortable with anything, like is that physical discomfort or mental or do they not want to ski a slope for a reason? Like, of course I expect them to speak up. And yet I don't impose those same things on myself or I'm learning to. I've, after this like subarachnoid hemorrhage, I am learning that, um, yeah, you have, you have to speak up. That's your, that's your job. Traveling in avalanche terrain, that's why we often teach that, um, you know, a group of four, for example, is kind of the ideal travel group size because everybody has a voice. And if you start to get bigger than that, or at least for me, it's very true. The second I'm in a group of kind of more than four people, I suddenly get really shy and quiet and um, not if I'm guiding, but with a group of of friends or peers, I'm much more inclined to um, 
yeah, I'd, I'm not be the leader or put my head down and walk in the back of the group. Right. Yeah. Well, these are uh, great things to reflect on as guides and mountain folk. Um, and for our listeners who are just, you know, out there, uh, whooping it up with their friends, like remembering that everyone has a voice. And if you set that up with your expectations in your group before you go out the door, uh, you know, the night before, let's say, or maybe if it's, you know, weeks before on some sort of big trip, like the one you referenced for Alaska, you know, we can build that container early and make that like, okay. And expect it really. I think that is something that our, uh, our industry and our backcountry planning is starting to evolve into is like this container building before you go out the door so that everybody can be a part of the conversation. And, you know, we definitely want to do that when we're in our workplace and we definitely want to do that when we're just out with our mates. Well, that is some great storytelling, Emily. Thank you for that. And, uh, and the insights you provided to our audience are, are wonderful. And me, I've taken a lot away from this conversation. Um, I'd like to ask you as we kind of start um, coming to the end of our hour here, it, was there any other thread that you wanted to pick up on there? Or is there anything for this season ahead that you're kind of excited about? Um, either a new project or something that you're working on? Or I'm really excited to be doing more um, mechanized skiing this season. I my typical winter season, or at least in the past, like five to 10 years has been pulled in many directions. So on one day I could be ice climbing guiding on another day. I might be teaching an avalanche course. Another day might be backcountry skiing. Another day might be cat skiing. I mean, it was, and I work for numerous operations and lots of different venues. So I have started to feel like I've been pulled really just stretched too thin. And um, so when this opportunity came up to work full-time helicopter skiing this winter, I, I jumped on it. And I'm really excited to go down a little bit of a different path. Um, it's, I think, as part of my guide career, what keeps me sharp and interested and not burned out is to be doing new things that still really challenge and engage me. And so um, mechanized skiing is is really super different than ski touring. It happens at a little bit of a faster pace. And what I'm finding is that um, really the hardest part is learning a lot of new terrain and um, starting to understand, well, helicopters for one thing, but um, seeing terrain from above and then being in it is very different than when you're ski touring and you slowly work your way. You know, it might take three hours to slowly work your way up a slope that you're going to then ski down. You have a lot of time to think about things. And so that'll be new to me. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, does not mean that I'll give up ski touring or avalanche education or ice climbing. Like those will all still be part of my winter, but just not to the extent they have been in the, in the past many years. All right. Well, you know, um, kudos to you for challenging yourself in a new way, um, with a new team and, and getting, um, creative with the way you're looking at your, your mountain workplace. Yeah. Uh, I think you're going to love it. It's uh, a super exciting and exhilarating way to do it. Um, using, helicopters to access terrain is really cool. And like you said, you've spent all this time moving through the mountains, kind of 
I know you've done some mechanized guiding in the past, but like this is like a new thing for you. And so you've spent this time going uphill, looking through the terrain, having different decision-making pace. And now you're going to be put into a new situation. Um, and so that operational pace is something I've been thinking a lot about lately is like you have to preload your decision-making before you go out the door. Not that you weren't before, but it's even like more important because you're you're going to be a little bit more on the sharp end when you're up there, the blades are spinning and you're like, there's our LZ, we're coming in and I've got this group of four. And you're trying to think about like, okay, well, the lead guide set their track and I actually have some leniency with where I can go. Where am I going to go? Yeah, that's right. And it, um, there's a, a good amount of stress with that. Like, and, and when I say good, I mean like it's good stress. It keeps me focused and not bored. And that's really, that's what I need at this point in my career too, is to, to stay engaged and to do something different and not just default to what I'm comfortable with and know best because you, you, you'll never grow from that point. So I'm looking forward to the challenge and it definitely makes me nervous in a good way. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing um, your stories and your perspective with us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and I wish you all the best this season. And Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening, y'all. We are honored to be able to bring you these kinds of long format interviews and dig into concepts that make us think. As the season carries on, make sure you get out there and practice rescue with your partners, perform a departure check every time you head out, and provide your friends or family with a plan of where you're headed and when you'll be back. If you're working in the mountains, take care of yourself and your teammates. Make those green choices and don't forget diligent self-care is the number one way to maintain professionalism, spread joy, and cultivate unforgettable mountain experiences. And as the calendar year closes down, take a couple extra bucks and send it over to the American Avalanche Association. Through an anonymous donor, we have the opportunity to match dollar for dollar up to 10 grand any donation received before December 31st. Support those that support you in the mountains and make a donation today. AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org Today's music was composed by Ketza. Find more beats to inspire your intellectual curiosity at ketza.uk. If you're looking for some artwork for a project, look up the venerable Mike T. He's done all of our show's artwork since the beginning. Check out his website at M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. Com. This episode was produced by yours truly, with spiritual support from Cam, Caleb, and Wes. Thanks, boys. If you find yourself over there on the Instagrams or Facebooks, check us out at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. And when you got some free time, and I know you'll have some free time, subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you listen to. You can also send us any feedback or ideas for a show at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. We're going to try to get one more episode in before the new year, so make sure you tune in in those last few days. And as you roll into your new year and you make your resolutions, just remember, maintain your ability to be surprised.